team. Welcome to episode 88 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. In today's episode, we get into the nitty gritty of negotiating the practice real estate and lease. What does it mean to have a triple net versus a gross lease? What happens if you sell the practice, but not the real estate? We've definitely talked about buying the building and did so in depth in episode 18, but wanted to take some time to cover the specific yet common questions we get when negotiating the building lease. This is often something that you don't really think about until you get to the tail end of a transition, and we want you to be prepared both from a buying and selling perspective. But before we get to it, Mr. Loretto. Well, hello, Miss Ratcliffe. Hello, how are you? I am excellent. Happy four-year anniversary. Is it? It's four years. You know why I know it's four years? How? Well, because one of the earliest episodes that we had was about the Mr. Cole Loretto going to OU for <gasps> orientation. And many listeners have come up to me and asked me about Cole and reminded me of the story how he did not show up to orientation with any type of uh, driver's license. So I had to have the Uber uh, it all the way the back. Uber, I do remember that. The Uber $180 exercise oh of goodness. son, always have your license. And so we just completed graduation. Whoop, whoop. Yes. That's yes, so exciting. Congratulations yes. to you and him. Yes. that's a big achievement. Yes. It was awesome. And a funny story, because you can't have that story being so good without having a good story. So I told him and reminded him about don't be dad. So <laughs> dad, many, many moons ago when I graduated, I did not get my cap and gown. I just forgot. And so I reminded him the importance of getting a cap and gown. Don't be dad. I was one of 2,000 graduates at the University of Texas at Arlington that showed up without a cap and gown. There is not a cap and gown to purchase. I'm thinking there's probably some type of like little vendor station and, you know, 10% of the people forget it. Nope. There's they won't no let you walk across the stage without a cap and nope, gown. Nope. So I ended up having to borrow one of the ushers outfits, uh, which was all white versus the all black that the other 2,000 participants had. So as you're going through the rows, walking back and forth, I had every single person, why do you have a white robe? Why do you have a white robe? I only think I could come up with creative was I'm getting my master's until somebody says, I'm getting my master's. I don't have a white robe. So then I changed the story of like, I'm getting my doctorate. And uh, so anyway, the kids thought this was a funny story. And I reminded Cole, don't be dad. So he's been very stressed all week. He said he looked several times to make sure that he actually had the cap and gown. I told him he's going to be having nightmares in the future about, did you make sure all your classes were complete? And he's like, dad, I've been freaking out like for two weeks. I keep looking at the cap and gown. I've gone to multiple counselors making sure I got all my hours in. I didn't want you guys coming up here and I mess it up. So thanks for all that stress. So I was like, buddy, you're good. Hey, you had the cap and gown. You know, I, I got through it. You outperformed your dad. You know, you got four <laughs> years and cap and gown. Boom. You're the winner, son. Oh, so, good for him. That's yes. Amazing. That's yeah. a really funny story. I can just envision you being the tallest guy in the white robe. Yes. <laughs> With 2,000 black robes. Yeah. I stood out, Christy. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Oh my goodness. What about you? What's happening in the Ratcliffe household? It's about ready to go summertime. Uh, kids get out of school. What? We're just managing like the summer pre-chaos, uh, like the camps and the coordination and having, you know, a pre-team is special. Yes. And we're going to make it through and it's going to be fine. 
And I just keep telling myself that every day. It's going to be fine. I remember those days. It is a struggle, especially as, you know, working parent, just like managing all of that and keeping them busy and all their schedules and trying to float back and forth. So, yeah, it's stressful. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure every, if we go back in time before every summer, I'm pretty sure I've said the same thing for probably four or five years now, which is like other camps must not just have people that work because like the nine yes. to three and the 10 to one. And I'm like, right. how is this possible? So I'm really <laughs> like, I don't want her to grow up, but maybe if we could just get a license. So maybe then she can be my driver for her and Bren during the summer. I have to load up my refrigerator. You know, Roxanne and I can live pretty much on an empty refrigerator for about nine months. But uh-uh. three months when now kids Now you got coal coming back. Yeah, we, we got we got to load up the food, okay? <laughs> Speaking of um, having extra tenants yes. in your oh, house. Yes, oh, I see what like you the transition did there. there. I see what you did. So, I mean, I think this episode really came from a lot of questions. And yeah. we talk about this a lot. And just kind of seeing this topic come up more and more it's typically not something that we really focus a lot on the front end of the process not because it's not important just because clients drive and kind of what they want to talk about is typically more price and more transition and the work back and timing and all those other pieces but this is an incredibly important part of a transition both for buyer and seller so two types of leases i'm just going to get like kind of some language out of the way said this during my intro triple net and gross leases are the two types of leases you'll see in dentistry. As always, there's always variations and kind of modified gross or gross or modified triple net, double net, but for the most part, triple net and a gross lease. Okay, so two different types. Triple net means you as a tenant are responsible for property taxes, insurance, and then a base rent. Okay, you can also have operating costs or cam costs, but the important thing is you're paying for a base rent and then you're paying for these building expenses. In a gross lease, you're paying a higher base rent, but you're not responsible for insurance and taxes. That is the landlord's responsibility. And so it's important you understand what type of lease am I going to be entering into? Who is responsible for these expenses? Because they're typically pretty big expenses. And then how are those expenses captured in the financials? So I've got a question for you because I know that like your team, as you think about it on the consulting that we do for both our buyers and sellers, there's a process. And like you said, both buyers and sellers are always interested in just the value and the asset allocation and all the details of the transition. But this real estate's obviously very, very important and something that sometimes gets pushed off to the very end. And the other thing I'd, I'd like to say to my buyers on this is the time to negotiate the real estate is the beginning. We, mm-hmm. we need to discuss that up front because it will have a big impact in the overall transition, especially if you're going to sign a lease that's going to be for 10 years or buy a building that's basically for a million dollars. So when your team you know, typically will handle this, and then it kind of goes to the legal at close, and it's where you typically will get much more involved and a lot legal in this case for the real estate, what percent of time would you say that you're dealing with this gross kind of all-inclusive versus this triple net building taxes, maintenance type expense plus the lease? So what's kind of the, the ratio that you would typically see? What percentage of time? I would say that we'd see triple net leases probably 90 to 95% of the time. We're seeing Most gross... Common. Yeah, 5 to 10%. And I will say that if I'm talking from a buyer's perspective, we're helping buyers buy a business and kind of a seller is presenting something, we're seeing triple net being presented most often. If you're a seller listening right now and you own your building and you own your real estate, you probably don't know what you're doing, right? Especially if you have a real estate entity and you own the real estate and you own your practice, it doesn't really matter who pays for what because it's all kind of coming out of the same pocket. But 
if you're looking to sell your practice and not your real estate, and we'll talk about the pros and cons of that in a little while, but if you're looking to sell your practice, you need to make sure that the practice has accounted for, the financials of the practice have accounted for the expenses you're gonna expect a tenant to pay. So like know where those are, right? Because that's what we're talking about here, is that's what we're gonna ultimately end up doing. But triple net by far common, okay. most common. I see the gross, it's like small town, Yep. Super small, you know, little 1,200 square foot endodontic practice where we're just going to do this gross lease at $2,000. It's just something super simple and small. That's just not normal. Yeah. And, and clearly we're not real estate experts. So like we're not saying that this is the only way to do it or this sure. is the way to do it. But I think that it's also understanding from a seller's perspective or a landlord's perspective, if you do a gross lease, you're taking on the ownership of those property taxes and insurance for the term of the lease, right? So if those are going to be going up a lot, then that could be a problem. So we want to make sure and what we would say is, hey, maybe have a provision in the lease where like any escalations in insurance and taxes are going to be accounted for, you know, by maybe increase in base or the tenant pay. So just making sure you understand also that, like you just said earlier, we're signing this for five, 10, seven, depending on the term, not just one year. So we really have to kind of think forward and look historically how have taxes increased? What has the impact been? So I'll know how to write it into a lease in the future. Okay, awesome. So I thought it would be good to kind of look at a couple of these pieces from both buyer and seller perspective. So one, what is like the most negotiated thing when we're kind of helping buyers? And then also, if you're a seller listening and you don't own your building and you are actually going and you're leasing from like a third party, what should you be negotiating in your lease, especially if you're interested in transition? So we'll start first with what we see as the most commonly negotiated areas of a lease, whether it be with a seller who owns the building or with like a third party landlord that's totally unrelated to the practice. HVAC, I know you were like, really? HVAC repair and maintenance of those things, that's a hugely negotiated area of a lease primarily because there's no like standard. I can't tell you, hey, it's incredibly standard for this to happen, X, Y, or Z repair of the HVAC versus replacement and who pays. So we see a lot of discussion here. What is your take, if you just think about it, super high level logical about who should be responsible for what? Well, it's hard. I tell you when you're going to want to negotiate it is when, you know, if you're the you're the tenant, you're going into a 25-year-old property and it's the original HVAC and there's probably two units on a bigger piece of property, say 3,500 square feet, maybe just it's one unit. You have to know that there is a, anywhere between a fifteen dollars to $20,000 quote-unquote gamble that you're playing with. And, and that's, you have to look at just equipment. You know, how long is that going to last? In this case, the equipment of the AC is going to last somewhere between 20 and 25. If it's a brand new AC, you know, you're not thinking about it at all because, hey, it's just included. So if you're the tenant, certainly, you know, well, that's old and I want new stuff and I, you know, I don't want to pay for it. You know, if you were the, the owner itself, it's like, well, th that's not included. You know, you're leasing this and then if, hey, if that goes out, you know, it's just something that you're going to pay for. And that's what this triple net is covering. It's not just the taxes and insurance, but also the maintenance of it. In this case, the maintenance of keeping the AC running. Yeah. And I would say that we typically see just, you know, if you're kind of thinking high level, again, what's fair and reasonable, generally what we see in this area, if we were kind of, you know, given a blank slate and said, hey, what would you recommend? Generally the tenant being responsible for the repair, the maintenance, the upkeep, and for a certain level of repairs up to a certain dollar amount, right? What we don't want is a tenant's responsibility to be like, hey, repair this, it costs 
15 or 16,000 replacing it costs 20, but I don't want to do that. So I'm just going to make you cover the repair of this HVAC. So we would basically have a cap that would say, Hey, $2,500 annually, you have to make sure you follow the maintenance schedule and use our maintenance company so that the landlord has some protection that they understand it's being kept appropriately. And then replacement would kind of fall more on the landlord side. They own the asset, they own the building. So therefore there's replacement is kind of their responsibility. Now, We definitely see a whole mix. And if you listen to this episode and then you get a lease for a transition and it has something different, that does not mean that the landlord is trying to screw you or, you know, that that's bad or you shouldn't accept it. Look at the big picture of the lease and try to understand. Look at the age of it, right? If it's saying you have to pay for a portion of replacement, but they just replaced it last year, the chance of that happening in the next 10 years is probably pretty limited. If it's a shared HVAC and you share it with a bunch of other, it's a multi-tenant space, well, then that's also something to consider. How much are you going to be responsible for versus maybe kind of if you're in a solo location? I mean, back to the big picture, it's a million-dollar practice and it makes half a million dollars. And built into this 50% overhead is this three, four percent rent factor. And it's got this condition in here that you're going to have to replace the AC and that's going to cost you $20,000. Again, big picture was that you're still making a half a million dollars. Big picture is is from percentage of rent as to Mm -hmm. your collections is all good. There were certain risks that we took, but that's what it took to get the deal done. That's what we did. So again, always kind of stepping back to see the big picture. That way it's not this, you know, kind of one-off, well, that's bad. Well, it could be the one-off that's bad, but there's 40 goods, and let's just offset that one bad and say we're willing to take that risk. Yep, 100%. The next thing we see is a highly negotiated area of leases and something we highly do recommend discussing is if you're a buyer buying into a practice or buying a practice, the seller owns the real estate, understanding what your option to purchase and what your right of first refusal would be. And so kind of give us the lay of the land of the difference between those two. Yeah. So the number one thing is if the buyer, as you look at this real estate, you absolutely love the real estate. It is, you know, call it a GP practice and it's got this kind of perfect size of low 3000s. It's got the layouts, perfect parking lot signage, and it's got the ability for an expansion, uh, you know, total of nine operatories, something where you've got a really big runway for a kind of a couple of million dollar practice. It's something you want to purchase. But the reality is this 3,500 kind of square foot facility may be a million five to a million eight or $2 million. And now all of a sudden you don't have that liquidity for a down payment and you just don't have the cash and tax returns the back that the bank is now going to give you that loan. So what you naturally enter into is a lease with that landlord, typically the seller of the practice. And so what we want to do is we want to be very conscious to be able to have a lease, but have that language in there again by an attorney that can allow us that as soon as we are ready to purchase that practice, in other words, that we've got the down payment, we've got the bank that's been approved, and the ability to get financing in order that will have the ability and kind of go back, you know, to that landlord and say, hey, we're ready to buy this thing. Because what's going to take place is that landlord is now getting this amazing check for X amount of months, in this case for 10 years. You know, you may come to them at year two or year three or year four and say, hey, I'm ready to purchase it. But they're like, no, I changed my mind. I'm getting a eight, nine percent yield on my real estate investment. The stock market's down. My, I don't really have a place to park my money, you know, if I were to sell it. So I think I'm just going to hold on. And now they got you. So it's super important to negotiate that piece up front when 
This is the perfect real estate that you want to purchase, but you just don't simply have the cash and financing ready at the time of close. Yeah, and I think it's important, you know, if you're a buyer listening and your seller won't give you the option, because we've definitely seen that where attorneys have said, hey, happy to give you right of first refusal, but not going to give you this option because then my hands are tied and I can't sell, you know, the real estate is easy and, you know, attorneys typically get involved. Know that's okay too, right? Like again, look at the big picture, understand that like, okay, this is ideal. This is what I want. He's saying he's going to sell it to me. He or she is going to sell it to me, but they're not willing to give me the contractual right. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Do I have enough of other pros? How much of a deal breaker is this for me? Because I think that's something that a lot of people, for whatever reason, are like, I won't buy this practice unless I have the right to buy the real estate. Okay. Are you sure? Are both of those things really tied or are they just tied in your head? Yeah. So let me say it this way. So the option to purchase is basically in the legal contract says you have the option to purchase. So if you were paying some ridiculous amount, $10,000 monthly rent, and that was for 120 months, you will pay $1.2 million of rent over that 10-year period. And it allows you to exercise that option to purchase so that you stop paying that rent and now you purchase and you'll now start paying the bank. The first right of refusal is just saying, you're going to pay me 10 grand. And if I choose to sell it within that 10 year period, I'll let you know, and I'll make sure you have the first opportunity. Well, if I'm the seller and I'm getting, again, this $10,000 check, and it's really good for me and my financial plan, and I'm getting a check in another state now, and you just keep sending it, I'm going to keep taking your money. So I may not give you the option to purchase until about year eight, at that point, I've already made eight dollars $900,000 in rental income. So again, for my buyers here, let's be smart about it and negotiate that up front. And for my sellers here, be aware that, yes, that's a good return on your investment. But if you hold on to that investment too long, and now you're at year nine, thinking and assuming that that buyer is going to just purchase, they may have built up just some issues that you didn't sell, and they secretly purchased land already down the street and they've already have a new building project, and next thing you know, you're 70 uh, in another state thinking you're going to sell for $2 million on your real estate, and the landlord is now saying, yeah, I'm out. So I'd rather us pull equity out from a financial planning standpoint, reduce our risk along the way from a seller standpoint, and then to pull that cash out and invest maybe in other real estate projects that you can control during those later years of your life. Yep. Last thing we want to talk about here is terms and rent escalations. So that's another negotiated point. If I'm a buyer kind of looking to enter into a lease with a seller or even a third party landlord, what terms, so meaning how long your lease is, and it doesn't necessarily mean how long it is in total, but what's that initial term and then the options to renew, right? So you might have a five-year term with two-year options to renew. Well, that means you have a nine-year total like ability to stay in that space that you control, but you only have a five-year term and then you have these options. And so it's important to understand what that initial term is, how long are they locking you in, how long do you need to be locked in from a bank and lending perspective. If you're a buyer who is going to buy this practice and maybe you don't love the location right. and you might want to sell it, well, don't don't enter into a 10-year term because that means for 10 years, you're not going to have the option to kind of move somewhere else. Maybe do a three-year term with two, you know, three-year options. So you have that nine-year window, but that's an important consideration. And then this generally goes along with rent escalations because now we have, hey, your rent's going to increase by a small amount each year, or sometimes it's based on the initial term, right? So maybe it's a solid rate for one or two years, and then it starts escalating every year thereafter, or maybe only at the term renewal. So just understanding the relationship between those two. 
Yeah, just there's so many people that just, especially my buyers, like I want to own the real estate, want to own real estate. You have to be able to think long term. You got to be thinking about that expansion. You got to be thinking about the ability to bring, you know, associate and a partner in. And so I don't like to get in confined spaces that don't allow for growth. So again, if it's not that perfect real estate project, let's get in there and lease. Let's grow it. Let's be super efficient. Let's get as much as we can out of that four operatory practice and then build a lot of cash, and then let's go build something that makes sense. And I agree with you. We don't want to get in some type of lease agreement that gives us a commitment. And I would say the maximum will be five years. And then, of course, the bank is going to be involved here because they have to see that at least you have those options because they're essentially giving you a loan for uh, typically over a 10-year period. And they want a guarantee that you have a place that you can rent to make money to pay back their loan. So it's not just what you want to do. It's also what the seller wants to do. And then obviously the third party is what the bank is willing to do from a lending perspective. Yeah, we've seen leases that where there's a termination option by the landlord, like at any given point in time or at certain intervals, banks don't like that, right? So we want to make sure we have a guaranteed, we want to be the person as the tenant who has the option to renew it, but we want to be able to make sure we have that space. So that's a really, really important point. So if we flip the table and say, if I'm a seller or a buyer, I mean, or a new owner, uh, right? And I'm negotiating an, a lease in a space, what should I focus on? Okay. And so we just talked about terms on the buyer side. Term on the seller side is also important. If I'm a seller or a owner and I'm thinking about becoming a seller, thinking about transitioning in the near future, understanding what term I'm committing myself to is very important. So we have seen, and I don't know why this is, but we do see sellers who choose not to renew their lease and choose to go like month to month. What are your thoughts on the month to month seller? I have a heart attack right <laughs> when they tell me they're month to month and they want to sell as soon as possible. And they have to know that this is just not going to bode well. I mean, it makes sense to you, the seller, but again, the buyer is going to have to lock in this long-term lease. And what if the buyer doesn't like your space and maybe the landlord doesn't want to do you know, a longer lease? So there's no, there's no way. So we've got to have some security there for our buyer and for our bank with the ability to get that longer lease. And a minimum, again, is going to be five years of what the bank is going to require. So just know if you are in that month to month, I understand that can feel good for you, but we will have to resolve that uh, when it comes time to sell in the practice. Yeah. And I think if you, again, let's go for a shorter term. Like if you're in that position where you're like, hey, I'm looking to sell my practice. I'm going to do a walk away. I don't want to be on the hook. And that's that's the reason, right? People say, hey, I don't want to have to be responsible for this lease when a new buyer comes in, or I don't want to commit myself to five or 10 years when maybe I'm only going to be here three. I get it. But at the same time, it's a non-negotiable from a buyer's perspective that there'd be a lease. And so there's a couple things we can do. One, shorter term. So maybe if your landlord is willing to let you go month to month, they're probably maybe willing to let you sign maybe a two-year term right. with options to renew. Maybe they're willing to kind of allow you to negotiate some points within there. One that you have to have, that lease has to be assignable. So we always want to make sure that it's assignable. Now, the landlord has to approve that person and all the legal language that goes around that, but needs to be assignable. Seeing if maybe you can negotiate language that allows you to get off of the hook for the lease when you assign it over. What you'll find is that most, if you pull out your lease that you have currently, what you'll likely find is that you are going to remain on the hook for that lease if the buyer falls through or the buyer fails to pay the landlord for the initial term of that lease. And so if you've signed a seven-year lease and you're only in year one, six more years of the buyer owning that practice, you're going to have to be on the hook. And that is not the buyer's fault. That is not something that they can get you out of. It's a function of your original lease and the original negotiation with your landlord. So if you're in the process of renegotiating, can we resolve that? 
can we take that clause out? Maybe challenging. Landlords have that in there for a purpose, but something to think about as we think about renegotiating our lease. I can tell you, I just signed a multi-million dollar lease here at this new beautiful (laughs) facility. And my name is on the hook for 11 years, period. End of story. It's not getting off. Yeah. So it just depends uh, certainly on the landlord. I'm sure the size of the loan uh, in this example and the size of the lease and the commitment has a ton uh, to do with it. Yeah. So those are the negotiated pieces from the buyer and seller's perspective. I want to focus in on if you're a seller who's listening and you want to sell the practice, but you don't want to sell the real estate yet, which we talked about it a little bit. The things that you're going to have to prepare yourself for and know going into the process of selling your practice that have to do with the real estate. And again, you might choose to hold on to that real estate, but knowing that a buyer is going to have to have a space, they're going to have to understand that rent is going to be a big component of their overhead. What are they going to be responsible for? What has the practice historically been responsible for? Those are all things that are going to affect not only the transition but then also the value of your practice when you're going through kind of the analysis pricing portion of the process. So when you think about kind of someone who's, you know, reading the practice to sell and wants to hold on to the real estate for that kind of mailbox money, what are some things that you, you know, want to make sure we've talked about many of them throughout this episode already, but what are some things you want to kind of recall out or re-emphasize to the sellers that are listening? Well, I mean, let's don't be greedy. There are two separate transactions. We want a fair market value for the practice and a fair market value for the real estate. And and typically, I would say, is the vast majority, especially when there are bigger real estate ventures that are out there, you know, call it a million plus dollars. Most buyers don't have 15 to 20% down payment. So you're going to naturally go into this lease with the buyer. You know, somewhere around that five years, go ahead and make a little cash off of them and then have that flexibility to turn around and sell that at the somewhere maybe in that year five mark fair terms again have some small escalators in there but don't be you know over the top keep in mind that we still need a fair rent because what's going to take place is the lender will look at the overall profitability and cash flow of the business they actually look at the real estate they actually look at the square footage they actually look at what fair market rent is for that area and for that space so if you're trying to come up with a number that is above market rent and even if your buyer agrees the bank is this third party that comes in there and says hey we notice that your 3500 square foot building is you're trying to lease it for $35 a foot and you know we've noticed that it's only $20 a foot in your area so we're only going to approve this amount you got to remember that the bank is part of this due diligence process as well to make sure that their buyer you know is protected so what's my answer okay just just be fair about it mm-hmm. you know look at comps in the area for this real estate and let's give reasonable fair terms for that knowing that more than likely you're going to turn around and sell this real estate let's keep the buyer happy and with an incentive that they're going to end up purchasing the real estate from you yeah and I think what we run into often and it can be a confusing part of the process for a seller because what you've paid yourself historically either you haven't paid yourself anything right? Because you didn't need to. and Or what we find more often is that someone, usually a CPA or a financial planner or a tax person, has said, well, pay yourself this, right? X dollar amount, because we're also looking at your tax planning and your real estate entity. And that's kind of what makes the most sense. It, it, you know, at one point, maybe it was fair market value, but you've kind of been at that level for the last 10 years. And you don't really know how to go about knowing if that's the right amount. So sometimes we'll say, hey, are you paying fair market value? They'll say yes. And then a month or two later, they'll be like, oh, well, I actually looked into it and we're actually paying, you know, 50% less than what fair market value is. So I need to increase it. 
well, if we've already valued your practice, if we've already created the profitability, if we've already shown that to a buyer, well, now we're in a tough position because now your rent is 50% higher than it was when we initially, you know, that's going to impact your profitability. It's going to drive down the value of your practice. And that's fine, right? Like that's a decision that you as a seller have to say, hey, I'm either willing to take that lower rent and have a higher value in my practice, or I'm willing to take the higher rent and have a lower value in my practice. Like you're going to be getting the funds in one way or the other. You're choosing how you do that, right? And so understanding how do I figure out what fair market value rent is and its impact on the profitability of your practice, I don't think that sellers sometimes put that together until they're at that later stage of the transition. Yeah, again, what you just iterated is, you know, mainly for my buyers, is you may see a number that they're paying themselves on rent. That's just an election. Uh, it's not something they can pay themselves a dollar or ten thousand dollars, you know, in rent. It all flows through to their kind of personal tax return. Again, that's just a personal decision that the seller has. But we truly want to look at this as a separate event because it obviously will impact the purchase, lease, and most importantly, the cash flow of this practice. So just think of it as this real estate, just like if you were to have a lease with, take over a lease, more than likely that lease is going to be fair market lease. That's why someone signed it. It's where you have to put on a little bit of uh, maybe some extra due diligence is when you're leasing from the landlord that has assigned their own lease amount. I would just say, buyer, let's look at this a little bit further. And just like you said, Christy, is for my sellers, we need to look at this, that what you've been paying yourself and make sure that whatever we disclose to the buyer from evaluation, like you said, we can't just like, hey, I've been paying myself $5,000, you know, rent, we created this cash flow and here's the value of the business. But on the very tail end of the deal, I want to change it. And now I want to be paid $8,000 monthly rent, but I still want the same value. That, that's just not going to work. So the biggest probably walk away from this is buyers know that when you're purchasing from a seller that owns the real estate, we really need to put a little extra effort in to make sure that whatever they're paying themselves truly is the appropriate amount. Yeah. You know, we push for this and it sometimes can lengthen the letter of intent process, but if it just says fair market value of rent, well, what does that mean, right? Because if you're in an area where you don't have a lot of comps or it's challenging to get comps, how do you buyer figure out what that amount is? So we just say, hey, buyer, seller, do a little more legwork on the front end. Let's actually put a range in the document so we can both know that we're not gonna have those surprises. If you're an owner of a building and you've never had to figure this out, a few ways, contact a commercial real estate agent who can maybe get an appraisal, who can help you get an appraisal, who can give you that range. If you have colleagues who own medical type spaces or who have sold their practice or who maybe rent from a third party landlord, ask them that, you know, hey, what is your base rent? And can I see a copy of your lease so I can understand? Because again, making sure we understand if we say it's $15 a square foot, $15 a square foot triple net, $15 a square foot gross, right? If we remember the beginning of our conversation here, the base rent will be higher if it's gross and lower if it's triple net because of the responsibility of those expenses. So there's a lot of pieces here to kind of start, you know, if you're a year out, two years out, five years out from transition, starting to make sure you're paying attention to not only the overall overhead of your practice, but how does my building come into this? What is my true rent? Like what expenses are, is the practice paying for versus my real estate entity? You know, a good analysis of your practice will make sure that we pull out the expenses of the building that are not going to be the practice's responsibility, right? You replace a roof, that's not the practice, that's the real estate entity, right? And so putting those in the right place and making sure they are correctly attributed to the right cash flow stream is really important in this process and in the transition of your practice. Yeah, and I think we did mention much on this is the importance of having a commercial real estate attorney involved. Mm -hmm. And so this is 
And when we talk about attorneys a lot on this podcast is we typically like to get the attorneys involved later Mm -hmm. in the process once we've negotiated and understand it. But certainly they will be key to this process, especially as if you're presented with a very long and complicated legal agreement from a lease, especially a corporate lease. Uh, we're definitely going to get you know some people involved to uh, help us understand the legality of, of some of these long contracts that are presented. Yeah, absolutely. Real estate experts, I mean, need to be involved in this process. If you're selling the building or writing a lease or kind of just anything related to that, always proponents of making sure you have the right people on your team. So yes. what else? Anything else, Mr. Lardo, about this lovely real estate topic? Man. We're going to go back to practice land. Exciting stuff. <laughs> it's, that's why it's been about 70 episodes we talked about real estate. <laughs> but you know, it's something we spend so much time in on the transition process. So hopefully this will be a resource for you guys. That's all we have for today. If you have questions about real estate, if you want us to cover other topics, regarding leases or other components of the transition process, you know where to find us. But that's all we have for today. Thanks for joining us on episode 88 of Transition Talk. Always make sure to share the transition love with those who may not know of us yet. And as always, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks, guys. Until next time.